Now turn in our Bibles to our text for today, which comes from Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So far, the reading of God's word. Beloved in the Lord, when we think of the power that we might experience in nature, our minds often turn to the thunderstorm. We are awed by the flashes of fire and the booming thunder. And this experience ought to point us to God. Psalm 29 is about God's sovereignty. For the Israelites, that meant they ought never to give Baal, the false god of the Canaanites, the honors given to God in this song. Baal is not Lord of the storm. Baal is not the Lord of glory. The storm ought not to inspire the fear of Baal. Neither is Baal a lesser god that has control of the storm while God minds his own affairs. God is actively involved in the storm. God speaks forth the storm. God is watching over his people. In the same way, we ought not to ascribe the storm to science, chance, or evolution. Sometimes because we can describe the reasons for the storm and how it comes into being, we think that we can understand the storm. We, can believe, we believe that we can understand why the storm is here or how the storm works. We can, nor, we can ignore the importance of the God who is the storm bringer and rely on on the knowledge, our knowledge of the storm. This idolatry is the foolishness that possesses the mind of our day. We don't imagine some God behind the storm in Canada. 
we imagine that we are gods because we know how the storm works. The truth is we can't describe everything in the storm. We can never have full knowledge of the storm or of any other process in nature. And to think that we do is arrogance against our Lord and Creator. Too often, man for today forgets the God who works in the weather and imagines himself as Lord of the weather. This psalm reminds us of the glory and majesty of our God in the weather we experience. He is the power behind all things. His providence guides every moment of our lives. We give God the glory for all things. And so today I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, Give God the Glory. First we'll see the Lord of glory. Then we'll, then we'll see the Lord who speaks forth the storm. That's most of the psalm, the center of the psalm. And finally, our final point is the Lord who is for his people. The psalm opens with a call to honor God. We will attribute the glory and strength we see around us to something or someone. We are a people. Man is somebody that God created to worship, to recognize that our Lord is our creator. And as our creator, he has control over all things. Ideally, humans would see the glory of God in the operations of nature and would delight in the God who had given them this beauty. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The psalmist wants us to recognize God for who he is. The psalmist wants all things to recognize God for who he is. And the text gives us two attributes of God, glory and strength. Glory means weightiness. It comes from the th way we think about greatness. We take people who are great seriously as opposed to lightly. Glory also refers to the things that those who are serious or weighty in society wear. The king's glory, for example, might be his crown, his scepter, and his throne. The scriptures tell us that God is robed in light and surrounded by angels who sing his praises. These are the glory of God, things that demonstrate how important and wonderful God is. The other attribute is strength. The glory of the Lord is not empty like a king who might wear beautiful clothes and yet has lost his ability to wage battle or to think clearly. The, the Lord's glory is matched by his strength. He is the mighty God. And the psalm here is addressed to the heavenly beings, literally the sons of God or the sons of the mighty one. The ESV translator here thinks of how Job uses the sons of God in his book to reference the angels. And it's also suggestive that this is a, this is a psalm that follows the pattern of creation with a sevenfold speaking of God that results in a cry of glory from the temple of God. The angels, possibly created before heaven and earth, are pictured here, praising God for his glory at the beginning and end of his work. We might have a glimpse 
into the heavenly temple of God. It's more likely, though, that the psalmist is being intentionally ambiguous. We might think of angels the first time we read through the psalm. But as we ponder it, we remember that God created man with eternity in his heart. In Psalm 8, we're told that man is under the angels for a little while, but will receive honor, glory, and power. He will be above the angels. Man will become a heavenly being like the angels. And in Christ, ultimately, we are above the angels. So we too are the recipients, we are called to hear the call of this psalm in this verse. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord, O saints of God, glory and strength. We are to hear the call to the heavenly beings in this psalm. In Ambassador, we'll often use it for our call to worship in the morning service. The greatness of those who ascribe glory to God magnifies his glory. Here's a reminder that we dwell in the heavenly places with Christ. The sons of God have come to maturity with the true natural son of God. Now this truth is no cause for pride in us, for our position is only due to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. All that we have comes from God. So whatever greatness this psalm might give to us, it's not a call to pride and arrogance, but a call to gratitude and humility for all that we have. Everything we are comes from God. The psalm repeats itself. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Not only is the Lord glorious, but his name, the manifestation of himself on earth, is glorious. We pray regularly, hallowed be your name. We want the name of God to be holy, separate, special here on earth. You might say, we want people to take the Bible seriously. We want to live in a way that makes people take the Bible seriously. And that begins with us taking our Lord seriously. And so we are called to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This suggests that the primary thing that the Lord is looking for in the worship of his people is their holiness. We worship him in the splendor of holiness, in in the midst, in the middle of that splendor. So God is looking for holiness in his people. They have separated themselves from the wickedness of the world and have washed in the blood of the Lamb. And in that way, they approached the Lord with fear and trembling, confident that the blood of the Lamb does cover sins, confident that by the strength of the lion, they will continue to pursue righteousness. That truth is ultimately the beauty and splendor God wants us to worship in. In this holiness, The world fears the holiness of God's name. Physical beauty is secondary and is meant to picture the beauty of our desire to separate our lives before God. So it's good 
to have a beautiful place to worship God with instruments that create beautiful music and people who dress well. After all, God himself commanded a beautiful temple overlaid with gold, with, with pomegranates all along the wall. But that ultimately begins, that's ultimately supposed to be a picture of heart holiness. Physical beauty is a supplement to our worship. It cannot replace our worship. If the temple becomes the most important thing, then the temple should be destroyed. But correctly used, the temple reflects the beautiful hearts of the people of God. And the same can be said for external beauty in worship today. And as if to prove that, our text points us to how God demonstrates his holiness in the mighty work of a thunderstorm, the beautiful glory and power of the thunderstorm. He can demonstrate his holiness any way he wants to. And so he wants the Christian to come to church recognizing who God is, and so he demonstrates his power as the creator God. And that brings us to our second point. The Lord speaks forth the storm. In 1 Kings 19, the Lord comes and speaks to Elijah. And to prove to Elijah who he is, both his power and his care for Elijah, he creates storms and earthquakes. And yet we're told that the Lord is not in these things. Rather, he speaks them forth to prove the power of his word. And that's what underlines this, this section of the psalm. God is speaking this storm forth. We wouldn't say God is in the thunderstorm, but he's speaking it forth by his word. This thunderstorm that passes over northern, northern Israel, if you have a, a map of northern Israel in your mind, you have the Mediterranean one side, and then Tyre and Sidon right next to the Mediterranean, and then it goes through northern Israel, and then on to Syria. That was a common path for thunderstorms at that time. That picture is a picture of the power and might that the Lord has. We are reminded here through the sevenfold phrase, the voice of the Lord, of God speaking forth the creation in Genesis chapter 1. This Lord then is identified as the same one who created heaven and earth. He's not a different God, a lesser God. The Lord merely speaks things into being. He speaks our future into being. There's more in here that points to creation. We can see this especially in verses 3 and 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. That's verse 3. Think of the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. This is how the Lord begins. And then at the end of, of this uh, sevenfold speaking, verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. God gives life, strips life of glory, and this results in the sons of God in his temple crying glory. Think of how creation ends in the creation of man set in the garden, a type of temple where man is called to live before the Lord and worship him in righteousness and holiness. 
So the beginning and end of this storm reflect the beginning and the end of the work of creation. Between this, we have expressions of of the power of the Lord and his sovereignty over all of life. Again, pictured in the storm. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. This power is matched by the power of the storm that breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Big cedars. You can think of of the the cedars in, in British Columbia. These were big, proud cedars. Compared to the power of the Lord expressed in the storm, this is only in the storm, the whole land of Lebanon is like a skittish calf or a young wild ox. I think of the dog my grandparents used to have. You could feel him shaking when he ran for refuge as the thunderstorm came up. And the storm is not even in the fullness of the glory of the Lord, but simply the storm that comes by his word. We then have the descriptions of the thunder and lightning. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. God's work of the thunderstorm demonstrates that once he created the world, he does not simply leave it or ignore it. He's intimately involved in the things that go on here on earth. God speaks forth the drought and the heat. God speaks forth the wind and the rain. The ecological disasters that happen around the world come from God. God speaks them forth and they are within his care. They are not simply the forces of nature or natural law. We think that because we can see patterns, we actually know where they come from. Absolutely not. God is speaking these things into place day by day. God is speaking out the pattern, what the medieval might have called the music of the spheres. The purpose of his work to a world that has forgotten God is to remind them of God. And that brings us to the final voice of the Lord in verse 9. The deer give birth because of the voice of the Lord. It's scared into it because of the storm. <clears throat> but it's also the work of God. And just as the voice of the Lord brings out the productiveness of the deer, so the voice of the Lord brings forth the fear of the people of God in his temple, and they shout, Glory! The works of the voice of the Lord instill fear in his people. This gives color to the story of Jesus and the storm in Matthew. Christ can walk on <clears throat> water during the storm. Christ speaks to the storm and it stops. He is the voice of the Lord. The response of the disciples is fear. Not the good sort of fear that shouts glory, but the wrong kind of fear that hides from God. The reality is unless we know God, we will not shout glory during the storm either. God reveals himself to all peoples. But unbelievers are unable to see the hand of God in the world. That's why Christ came, so we can see and know the works of God, so that we can delight in him, in what he does in the natural world. We recognize that all things come by his hand. And for the Christian, that's good news. Brings us to our last point. The Lord is for his 
people. For the Baal worshiper, nasty weather brings all sorts of fear. And it does so for the modern scientific man as well. Whatever merit the claims of climate change and global warming might have, they do not need to bring that same fear to the heart of the Christian. We know that God's knowledge of what is going on is more than the knowledge of our scientists. We know that God is speaking forth the weather that we experience. And we know that through it all, he cares for his people. He is king. And when we experience bad weather or unhelpful weather, we can look at the mighty deeds of God and shout glory. We don't need to be afraid because our God is for us. Our text simply points to his kingship and then declares that he is for his people. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He is king. He is in control. Not the kings of this earth, not the World Economic Forum or the United Nations. And this king is for us. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. God is with us. God is for us. As we confess in the catechism, God is both willing and able to do good for us. If he controls the thunderstorm, he is also for us. That's what Peter forgot as he, as he walked toward Christ on the stormy sea. In Christ, he was strong, but as soon as he relied on his own strength and his wisdom, he began to sink. Christ is over the flood. Christ is king forever. So when we deal with things beyond our strength and wisdom, we must depend on Christ. It's easy to look at the storms and, and think about electromagnetic fields and water cycles and forget that it is God who is overlooking the storm at this very moment. It's easy to look at metaphorical storms, the plotting of academics and journalists, billionaires and CEOs, or the weakness of the church, and forget that God is in control. He is guiding all things for the sake of those who trust in him. We really can wait on the Lord. We really can trust in him for strength. We can walk on stormy waters and shout glory by faith in him. That's why the psalm ends with that promise of peace. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing together from Psalm 21, verses 5, 6, and 7. <laughs>